Well, hey, church, glad to see you here this morning. Uh, a few years ago, I was working on my car in my driveway, and I decided that it would have been a lot easier if I would have started this project that I was doing on it um, in the garage instead of out in the driveway. I forget what all the reasons was behind that. And so I decided, I was like, okay, this is what I got to do. I'm just going to, it wasn't drivable at that moment, but I'm like, I'll just push, i put the car in neutral, right? And I'll just push the car in the garage. My plan was, and what I tried to do at first is I put it in neutral and I was like, I'll just sit here in the driver's seat. I'll stick my leg outside the door. You know, I'll just like kind of scooter it in. This will be a piece of cake. That didn't work. Um, I couldn't even get it to move. And so I was like, ah, oh, okay. So I got out of the car and I'm walking to the back of the car and I, and I noticed that the car is kind of rolling alongside with me. And in that moment, I, rem- I remembered that, uh, oh yeah, my driveway, which looks totally flat, actually has a slight decline towards the street, which I should have known because, uh, because previously, I don't want to throw out any names or throw anybody under the bus, but the other driver in my household, all right, one time, had left the car in neutral for some reason and gone into the house because it just sat there and then 30 minutes later came out the front door and the car was blocking the street in the middle of the street. And so, and so I should have known that. And so I'm like, oh yeah, okay, slight, okay, the car's, and it's getting faster and faster and faster as it's rolling out into the street and there's cars going by and stuff. And so I like run behind the car and I start to, I start to, you know, push back against the car and it's difficult because like, you're fighting gravity, it's, you know, it's just, it's just, hard to do. It's a lot harder than I expected. And I'm thinking at that moment, you know, as the car's rolling back, I'm like, I only really have one option in this, you know, within the scenario, all right, to avoid disaster. My one option is to like man up and just stop it and push the car as, car as hard as I can and push it all the way into the garage where I knew it was flat. And that's what I had to do in that moment. I remember it was like pushing back to me and I'm like, I'm like, my foot's out in the street and I finally got it to like stop its momentum. I slowed it down, I stopped it, and then I was able to start pushing back inch by inch, fighting for every piece of ground to get it into the garage. That, in a sense, is the book of Jude, okay? Jude, what he's going to warn us about and what he's going to um, attempt to uh, get us to understand is that we have an enemy out there. We have a force that is coming against us. He describes it as the enemy that we as Christians in here, that we need to always be ready to push back against. And uh, we're going to be looking at Jude for the next couple of weeks. Jude is a short little book. There's not even chapters in this book of the Bible, okay? It's all just verses. And, um, and so it takes you about, it'll take you, like for me, I'm a very slow reader. It takes me about three and a half minutes to finish the whole book off. Some of you guys are like, man, that's my kind of book. All right, I can read a whole book in three and a half minutes. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about, all right? That is Jude. You can read it in about three and a half minutes. It's the second to last book of the Bible. So if you're looking for it, all right, just flip all the way back to Revelation, the last book of the Bible, and then turn left, and it's right there. You gotta be careful because it's so short. It's like half a page maybe in your Bible, and, um, and so make sure you don't miss it. But I just wanna give you a fair warning that Today and next week, man, it's just going to be weird. All right, Jude, he is a master at really packing in all the weirdest stuff from the Bible, and he packs it all into one condensed, you know, few paragraphs. That's what he does. And when I say weird, I'm not like being negative on the Bible by no means, okay? This is all scripture. This is all truth. This is all from God. But he just takes the oddest stuff that he can find, and he throws it in here, and he uses a bunch of examples 
of, uh, of, of what, he's trying to, what he's trying to get across and, um, and how we need to push back against, uh, against false teaching and stuff like that. And so um, one of the few unique things about Jude is that Jude is actually Jesus' half-brother. Okay, all right, uh, same mom, different dads, all right, Jude's dad was actually Joseph, remember Jesus didn't have a human dad, if that makes sense, um, can you just imagine that, like, I just want to take a step back before we, like, really jump into this, and just imagine how it would be to have Jesus as your older brother, there's some good things about that, also probably some bad things, all right, good thing is, um, you know, Jesus, he's not taking your stuff. You know, he's not stealing it, although maybe he would because it's actually his stuff. I don't know. So maybe, I don't know how that would work. Like, he's not going to steal your toys. He's not going to do anything like that. He's not going to make fun of you. He's not going to make you cry. Okay, so that's good. That's good. But then there's also the negative aspect of, like, how would you want to follow in Jesus' footsteps of having the perfect older brother who never did anything wrong? Like, how many times do you think... Do you think Jude heard in his life, like, oh, Jude, like, from Mary or from his mom? He's just like, she's like, Jude again, why can't you just be a little more like Jesus, you know? And Jude's like, I'm a dude, I'm, a, I'm not God, you know, like that, like it'd just be, that part would be absolutely terrible. And so Jesus was always perfect, even when he was a child, compared to Jude, who was always the one, compared to Jesus, he was always the one who, who made all the mistakes. And so he probably got compared to Jesus his entire life. And so Jude brings to us a very unique perspective. By the way, do you remember the other um, half-brother of Jesus who wrote a book of the Bible? James. James? Yeah, that's it. You got it, okay? A little... You guys are scared to say, no, you're good. You got it. Um, James. So Jude and James are actually full brothers. And so right off the bat, Jude, he explains this a little bit. Um, He says this. So he starts this letter off. He's writing to another church. And uh, he says, hey, it's Jude. Okay, by the way, we see in the book of Matthew that his name is actually Judas. Jesus had at least four half-brothers, and, um, and James and Jude are, are two of those, and then he also had some sisters we see in Matthew, but he calls himself Jude. I don't know why uh, he kind of shortened it to Jude. Maybe it's because at this point in time, Judas was not like a popular name, if you get what I'm saying, within the Christian circle, so maybe he's like, yeah, I'm not Judas anymore. You, hey, you just call me, call me Jude, okay? So he says that. He says, hey, um, this is Jude. And he describes himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. He doesn't call himself a brother. He's not, he's not playing the family card here. He's like, no, no, no. I'm just like you. I am a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. So that's who he's from. He says this letter is to those who are called. All right, now what's it mean to be called? All right, who's he referring to? All right, Jude, all right, he's saying these are, this letter is to people who have been called by God and people who have answered that call. Then he describes what a called Christian looks like, someone who is loved by God and someone who is kept for Jesus. He says, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. He says, dear friends, although I was eager to write you about the salvation that we share, I found it necessary to write Right now. And so what he's saying is, all right, he's giving them the heads up. He's saying, hey, this, this is not the letter I wanted to write, okay? I originally, I wanted to write a letter encouraging uh, you guys and celebrating the salvation that we all share and what Jesus did on the cross. And we always going to talk about the ins and outs of what that means to each and every one of us and how awesome that is. But 
Apparently, Jude had heard that something very, very bad was happening within this specific church and with maybe within a group of churches, and that he felt it so necessary to drop, jot down a quick letter and get it in the mail like ASAP. And so what's happening within these churches, as the Bible describes, is that there's false teaching has crept into the church, which is one of the worst things that could happen, right? And it's a very, very, very big deal to God. And so as you read Jude, um, and I would encourage you, by the way, to read Jude this week. Okay, can you handle that three and a half minutes every day? Okay, some of you guys aren't so sure if you could find the time, all right, but I bet you could if you tried. All right, three and a half minutes. You should read Jude just every morning this week. Just read it. Read it, read it, take your three and a half minutes. Not just read it, but I also I encourage you to think about what Jude has to say. And it's weird, and it's complicated. You might not understand everything, but the more you read it, the more you understand. And uh, you'll have a foundation of knowledge about what Jude is about from this morning, if you pay attention. And, uh, and then you'll be, able to, you'll be all caught up, ready to go when we finish it off next week. So um, I encourage you to do that. And when you read the book of Jude, um, I would encourage you to read it with the urgency in which Jude wrote it. Okay, kind of throw that in there as you're reading it. Remember that he is urgently trying to get them to see and trying to get them to understand the seriousness of this false teaching that has kind of crept into the church. And so he says, he says, I found it necessary to write now. This isn't the letter that I wanted to write. I wanted to write this long, sweet letter celebrating everything. But he's like, but... I found it necessary to drop this short letter down appealing to you. This is what the whole book's about. I want to appeal to you to contend for the truth or contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once and for all. Now, what's a saint? All right, we've talked about this before. All right, a saint, by the way, every single time the Bible uses the word saint, um, it's just referring to Christians. Okay, so some of you guys are ex-Catholics, and you just moved up in the world because now you are a saint. Woohoo! Good job, okay? Um, but it's only, a saint is only for those people who have given their lives over to Jesus. So if you do that, if you've, have you, if you've done that, and you've started that relationship with God at some point in your life, the Bible, you're, you're a saint, okay? So congratulations to you. You have moved up. Um, he's saying this. He's saying, I found it necessary to write you, appealing to you guys. My whole goal of this letter is to appeal to you and convince you guys to contend for the faith. Now, this word contend, all right, it is an athletic term. What he's saying is, he's saying, man, you guys need to compete. He's looking at this church. He's like, no one's competing here. Everybody's just kind of sitting on the sidelines watching stuff that shouldn't be happening happen. All right? He's saying you got to compete for our faith. Why? Because we have an enemy, and I just want to let you know, who's coming for you. Do you realize that? The Bible's very real about this. All right, Jesus talked about this. Everybody talks about this. There's an enemy that's real, all right? And by the way, I think the enemy's most, you know, one of the most successful tactics of the enemy is to convince us that the enemy's not there or the enemy's not real. Or the enemy's not coming after someone like us. No, no, no. The Bible tells us we do have an enemy. He is very real, and the enemy is coming after you. Why? Or How? He says, he says, this is how this happens within the church. He says, some people who were des designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. He's saying the enemy is always working. All right, the enemy is always coming. Uh, in 1 Peter, he describes, or Peter actually describes this this way. He says, hey, you guys need to be alert. 
He says, watch out, keep a lookout, because your adversary, the devil, all right, ever heard of him? He says he is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for some, anyone he can devour. And then he says, so resist him. All right? I mean, think about it. What if there was a lion outside, you know, looking specifically for you, all right, was trained to kill you? All right, would that change, like, I don't know, how you left church today? Would it? Yeah, okay, it would. All right, you go out to the doors, you'd be like, hey, anybody see a lion out there? There's a lion after me. And the greeter at the door is like, oh, yeah, I just saw it went that way like five minutes ago. And you're like, oh, okay, all right. You go to this side, and you'd be like, hey, anybody see a lion? They're like, yeah, it's right there, all right? And you're like, okay, all right. And you, what would you do? You'd be strategic. It would completely change how you leave church today. It completely changed your life, right? You'd be, you'd be making plans. You'd be strategic. Okay, I think I could get to my car before that thing hears me. Or if I could distract it over here, you know. Like, that's how you would be thinking, right? you get strategic. You'd make a plan. See, Judah's saying, right, that it's not that the enemy will come someday. Jude's saying, man, the enemy's here amongst us. Right? Against us. It's already come into the church and it's stealthy. It's stuff that we don't even realize. Our enemy, by the way, ain't dumb. All right? He's strategic. And we, a lot of times, don't even realize it. He says, People have come by stealth and they are ungodly. They're turning the grace of our God into sensuality. All right? He's talking about sexual stuff there. And he says, And denying Jesus Christ, our only master and Lord. He's saying, this is what's going on, okay? You got these people that they're just, he's not talking about just people who aren't Christians that are coming in, they're trying to figure things out, they're trying to find answers, they're looking for answers, they don't know quite where they, where they stand with Jesus, and we know we got people in here like that today, that's cool, we want you here. He's not talking about people like that. What he's talking about is people who are act- actively teaching within the church, and the things that they teach are actually not found in the Bible, Right, the things that they teach are actually from society and the way that the world thinks. Right, see, and what's going on in this specific church is that the church isn't influencing these people. It's actually the opposite is happening. Right, these people are influencing the church. And the church, right, is, and it's going to bring the church down is what he's saying. It's going to bring these Christians down. And what they're specifically teaching here is that they, um, he, they're saying, hey, you do whatever you want. Right, the way you live your life, God does not care. All right? And especially, specifically, he's talking, they're talking about sexuality. They're saying, do whatever you want. Do whatever feels good. All right? Sleep with whoever you want. Be with whoever you want. Spend the night with whoever you want. It doesn't matter what you do on that end. And the reasoning is, they're saying, hey, God's grace will cover you. God will forgive you. Now, are they wrong on that? Is that true? Right? When we do something wrong, does God forgive us? He does, right? Yeah, he does. When he paid for our sin, when we paid for everything that we've ever done wrong, right? he just didn't pay for part of our sin on the cross 2,000 years ago. No, he paid for all of our sins. See, when we sin, God's grace covers us. But what Satan is doing is he's taking God's grace and he's distorting God's truth. See, just because God is unbelievably gracious to us, that does not give us, give us the freedom or the reason to rebel against him. Actually, we see Paul. He brings this up in Romans chapter 6. In Romans chapter 6, it's kind of funny because Paul, 
He's going on and on about God's grace. He's just like, man, grace, grace, God's grace. There's all kinds of grace. And he's like, man, God is like pouring out his grace. There's so much grace that it's just, it's just awesome. And then Paul poses a question. And Paul's like, so should we sin more so we can experience more grace? And everybody in the crowd, you know, everybody reading this letter, they're all like, uh, is that a trick question? What's that mean? Uh, no. And he's like, you're right. No way. Should we be sinning more so we can, so we should be, you know, to experience more of God's grace is actually the opposite of how we should think. But if you think down deep inside of us, how often do we do that? Where we're faced with a decision between right and wrong, and what do we do? Like, we, I think we all do this to a certain extent. Um, like, like, we reason with ourselves. We're like, okay, well, I know I shouldn't, but I really want to. But and then we think to ourselves, well, God will forgive me. Well, he's gonna, he paid for it, so I'm going to do it anyway. It's like what we're doing is we're using God to give us permission to do the exact opposite of what God says. We're using God to give us permission to sin. Like, think about it. How evil and jacked up is that? That's the teaching that has crept into this church. And people are listening. See, the Bible describes this as false teaching. The Bible describes this as uh, false teaching as just complete lies. And Judah is saying, when someone comes in teaching something that God didn't say, that we as Christians are to actively fight against it. We as Christians are to man up and compete. We as Christians are to resist. We as Christians are to push back with everything that we have. See, this was a big problem for this church 2,000 years ago, and it's still a big problem here today. I mean, you look around at churches. I mean, just look at churches at our, in our town, Tiffin or Seneca County. All right, there are churches everywhere, right, that have completely abandoned the truth of the Bible. All right, and usually what they do is, is they don't abandon all of it. What they do is they pick and choose which things about the Bible they like and which things about the Bible that they don't like, and they reject those things, and they keep the ones that they do like. And all of a sudden, you have a distorted truth. That's the way the enemy works, and there's examples of that all around us. In fact, I would even say most churches around us, not all, but most, have distorted truth that's what the enemy does. It's exactly what Jude is warning us about. The Bible is what keeps us grounded. All right, the Bible is the only truth that we know is 100% truth. The Bible is what keeps us on track. And when you leave the truth in the Bible, you fall. The whole church falls. It's all about the truth. And there's plenty of examples of that all throughout the Bible. And Jude gives us a few of the most weird ones. Okay, you ready for this? Are you ready for this? Yeah. Okay, wow, that was way different than the first one. Okay, all right, you can sense my frustration with you. And yeah, all right. He says this. All right, he says, now I want to remind you. Here are some examples. He's going to give us three examples. And uh, and. Then he's going to give us three more. But this is what he says. He says, now I want to remind you. He says, although you came to know all these things once and for all. He's like, you already know this, right? He says, remember, like the example. He said, remember that time when Jesus saved the people out of Egypt? Notice, by the way, that he doesn't say Moses saved the people out of Egypt. He's saying, no, no, no. Moses was the instrument. God was the one who was doing that, Jesus. He says, remember that time when Jesus saved a people out of Egypt and later destroyed those who did not believe? All right, what he's pointing at, he's saying, hey, when we leave truth, God brings righteous judgment on us, which isn't something that any of us want, by the way, okay? I don't want God's judgment on me. 
even if it is, even if it is right. Like, you don't want what's fair. You don't want fair, man. All right, you just don't. And here he's saying, he's saying, here's an example. All right, remember this story? All right, the Jewish people, uh, God had just delivered them out of, out of Egypt. They had been in Egypt for like over 400 years. They'd been slaves in Egypt. They cry out to God. God hears them. God raises up this dude named Moses and says, Moses, I want you to go and lead these people out. Moses goes and through like a, a, a series of miracles, all right, and plagues and all this stuff that happens to the Egyptian people, all right, the Pharaoh finally says, all right, you take your people, get out of here. And then he does a whole bunch of things. They're following like a pillar of fire and there's just all this crazy stuff. They walk through the Red Sea on dry ground with the water parts with Moses. And they get to a place. And remember what happens? One of the first things that they do once they like stop for a while, they make themselves a god. Remember that? It's a golden calf. You would think, like, I'm just saying, like, I'm not into fake gods and none of us should be, by the way. Hopefully you're not. But if you're going to make yourself a fake god, like, you know, you think it'd be like a lion or like a dragon or something, something sweet. They make themselves a cow. Not cool. That's not cool any, at any time in history, you know. So they make themselves this like golden cow. I don't know who thought of that. And they start worshiping this cow right after they saw all this stuff that God had done for them. And so he's pointing at that. And so, and so they do that. And what happens? God judges them. God's like, okay, you want what's fair? Right? And he punishes them for that. After that, they start complaining against Moses, not even just against Moses, but also against God complaining about food. And they're tired of this food. And they're tired of eating that. And they want water. Why did God take us out of Egypt? We want to go back to being slaves. And just all this stuff. And remember what happens? God judges them for that. And then they get to the promised land, this land that God had promised them that was, um, that was really, really good for them. God was going to go in. He was going to, he was going to, he had it for them. And that was his plan. And they get to this, this land and they refuse to go in. And they're like, ah, we don't really want to go in there. The people are too tall and you know, we don't think we can conquer them. And they're like, we don't want to go in. And God's just like, okay, fine. Stay out here and die and I'll take your kids in later. And that's exactly what he does. Right? They wait 40 years until that whole generation dies off, and then God takes them in. And so Jude is trying to get these people to remember. He's like, remember that? Remember how those people, even though they were God's chosen people, they left truth. And what happens? God judged them, and they fell. He gives us another example. Gets a little weirder here. He says, and the angels, remember them? All right, he actually goes further back. This is back, more, this is back before the flood. He's saying, and the angels who did not keep their own position, but abandoned their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains and deep darkness for the judgment on the great day. Now, what's he talking about here? He's talking about further back in Genesis 6, what we see is, is a time right before the flood um, that uh, we know from the Bible that it's, it seems like uh, Satan, he rebelled against God. We know that happened. And about a third of the angels actually followed Satan in the rebellion against God. And so when that happened, obviously they got kicked out of heaven, and they're out on earth, and that's actually what, you know, Satan, that's where, why Satan was here, and he tempted Eve and, and Adam and all that stuff. And so um, while they were here, some of them, as the human race grew and grew and grew and grew, some of them were so bad that they actually slept, some of these fallen angels actually slept with women and produced, like, a different race, all right? I don't know how it all happened. I don't understand it all. Um, the Bible describes these in Genesis chapter 6 as the Nephilim. It's just, a, just an obscure verse, you know, in the middle of Genesis. 
And, um, and apparently, this act of doing this, which is understandable, was so evil to God that God decided, hey, I got to start all over here. So I'm, I got I to gotta put these people down. I got to start all over. The whole earth is just the human race is just so evil. And so he picks out the only good family that's left on the whole planet, Noah and his sons. And he saves them through the ark. He brings the flood, all right, and, every, and he starts over from them. And apparently what he had done is he had chained up those fallen angels, the ones that were the worst of the worst, all right, the ones that um, had left their, what, James, what Jude says, left their proper abode, okay, he took those worst ones and he took them and he chained them up and they're like, you know, in a, in a prison or something. They're in a place somewhere chained up where he is not letting them out. Actually, what we're going to find out is at the end, at the tribulation time, he, un, he unleashes them, okay? And it's just a horrible, horrible time. Uh, we see this idea pop up throughout the Bible, okay? We see, remember the time that Jesus, he's, uh, they cross uh, this big lake called the Sea of Galilee and this like naked demon-possessed guy comes running up to him, remember this? Right? And he's like, oh, we got so many demons in here. They call themselves legion. There's all that kind of stuff. And remember what they come running up, begging Jesus. They're like, hey, Jesus, I know who you are. I know that you're actually God. I know what you're doing here. And they're like, but whatever you do, please, please, please don't banish us to the abyss. That's the word they use. He's like, don't send us to that place where the worst of the worst of the worst are that you've already chained up since before the flood. Please don't send us there. Right, we see this pop up in Peter. Peter talks about it. He says that one of the things, this is sweet, I think, one of the things that Jesus did on, on, during the three days that he, between um, dying on the cross and then being raised from the dead on the Sunday, one of the things that he did during that time is he actually went down to that place and just like told him what happened, all right, which is sweet. Like he goes down, and he's like, oh, hey, guys, hey, haven't seen you for a while. Hey, you've been, you know, I know you guys have been offline for a while, so I just want to let you know. Um, I won, and uh, the battle's over, so uh, we'll see you guys on Judgment Day. I got to go raise from the dead later, you know, like that type of thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like he just goes and tells him. He's like, hey, guys, I won. See ya. You guys have fun down here. And so um, that's, what we see Je- that's what we see Jesus doing. And so Jude, he's just pointing out, he's like, man, it's crazy to think about. And I know, you know, we, just, we don't talk about angels that much anymore. But he's, like, but he's like, hey, even the angels, they rebelled against God. Even some of the angels, some of the angels, they left truth. God judged them, and they fell. He gives us another example. He says, likewise, remember Sodom and Gomorrah? All right, this happens kind of in between the flood and, and, uh, and the exodus, which we've already talked about. He says, Sodom and Gomorrah, those were two cities and their surrounding towns. Right? He's like, remember, we see this in the book of Genesis, how they committed sexual immorality. I mean, you got, they, these people were just obsessed with sex. You got men sleeping with men. You got women sleeping with women. You got, um, they're, just, they're just all about it. Remember, uh, at one point, there's one good guy left in town. His name is Lot. And God sends angels because he's going to destroy these cities. He's going to pour out judgment, righteous judgment, by the way. And what's he do? He sends angels to go get Lot. And these men of the city, they're trying to sleep. They're trying to rape the angels, okay? Not a good thing. And so, and so this is so bad to God and so, so evil that he's saying, um, he's saying they, this town, they committed sexual immorality and perversions. And they serve as an example by the undergoing of the punishment of eternal fire. He's like, these are three examples 
that show us that when we reject truth and when we actively leave truth that God judges us and we fall. That's how important truth is. It's worth fighting for. It's worth competing for. And as Christians, we always need to be on the lookout for false teachings. We always need to be ready to push back with everything that we have, comparing everything that we believe and everything that we hear in church and outside of church with God's word, with the Bible, because we know this is truth. See, false teaching has crept into this specific church, and these people are spreading it. He says, in the same way, these people, they rely on their own dreams, right? They defile their flesh sexually. They reject authority, and they slander glorious ones. Now, this, this gets a little different as well. Um, what he's pointing at, he's saying these people, they slander, like they talk a big game even against like angels and demons, which are just fallen angels, and the devil, okay, and Satan himself. And so, I mean, you, we see this in churches sometimes, not this church, all right, but there's other churches that, you know, they're always like talking smack against, you know, the devil and demons and stuff like that, which is just kind of just weird. And uh, here he's saying, yeah, not even that. He's like, that's not good either. He mentions, he says, and he gives us an example here. He's like, yeah, think about it. Like, remember when Michael the archangel was disputing with the devil in an argument about Moses' body? Told you it was about to get weird, Okay. He says, he did not dare to utter a slanderous condemnation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So here, he's giving us an example. He's like, we shouldn't even talk a big game. We shouldn't even slander, right, the devil, <laughs> okay? He's giving us a little insight into what happened when Moses died. Remember, the Jewish people, they get out of Egypt, and they refuse to go in the land, and so that applied to Moses, as well, Moses wasn't allowed to go in either as they waited their 40 years for that generation to die off. And so God and Moses, um, I guess the best way to say it is like they took a little walk up the mountain. You know what I mean? Took a little walk in the woods and Moses didn't come back. And so Moses ends up dying and um, God actually buries him. But apparently we see that Satan, he wanted Moses' body for some reason. Obviously, that was for an evil purpose. We don't know what that was. And so Michael, the archangel, had to step in, and uh, he had to, like, fight Satan, and he had to stop him, all right? And that's what he did. And so, but Jude, he's not pointing out that that happened. What he's saying is he's saying not even Michael would talk slander. Not even Michael would dog Satan. He relied on Jesus for help. He's like, and that's an angel. That's like an archangel, right? That's like a powerful one. That's like a big time, big time angel there, let alone us. He says, but these people, he says, they blaspheme anything, right? They complain about everything. They talk about and they slander everything that they don't understand. Does that sound like the world that we live in today? All right, if they don't get it, they don't agree with it, they automatically downplay it. They automatically dog it. They make fun of it. He says, he says, and what they do understand by instinct, like what just happens to come to them, he's like, they're like irrational animals. And by these things, they are destroyed. By these things, they will be judged, he's saying. Then he says, woe to them. For they have gone the way of Cain. They have plunged into Balaam's error for profit and have perished in Korah's rebellion. You know what he's talking about here? All right, we're all familiar with these stories, right? Because you should know, in all honesty, right? Here's why reading your Bibles are so important, okay? 
We should know exactly what he's talking about with these three examples, Cain, Balaam, and Korah. We should know who those people are and how they fell. And this is, I'm not like scolding you like, you should read your Bible more. You should read your Bible more. You should read your Bible. Did you read your Bible today? I don't think so. You know, like I'm not saying that, okay? What I'm saying is, all right, reading the Bible is super important to the Christian. Right? You cannot grow in your relationship with God if you ignore God's truth, which is sitting, you know, which everybody has, I assume, sitting at home. Um, here at Grace, we're a Bible teaching church, okay, which is what all churches are supposed to be. And, um, and so we teach here on Sunday mornings. We even have our Wednesday night Bible study. But, like, that's not enough. You know, that's not enough. We should be reading our Bible, these are God's words that are written to you. We should read it. And we should think about the things that we read. See, Jude assumes that his readers are familiar with what he's talking about. Right? He's like, oh, you know, I think he's writing there and he's like, okay, I got to write this quick letter, you know, because we got some bad stuff happening and, you know, and they need to get back to truth. They need to push against, you know, he's writing this and he's like, oh, yeah, here's three examples. And he's like, well, are they going to know? Oh, yeah, of course. It's in God's word. So these Christians, they'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Surely they'll know. And then we're sitting here today and we're like, what? What's he talking about? Balaam? Balaam? What? How do you say that? Korah? You know, we're looking at that kind of thing. See, it's funny because some of you guys um, used to be Catholic. And I'm not trying to pick on the Catholics, but I'm just saying. And you've come to me and you've been like, you know what? The Catholic Church, you know, they, were, they never pushed reading their, your Bibles. And it was always like the priest will tell you what it means. And you have said to me, like, I love this so much because, because we should be reading our Bibles. We should be getting into it. And, but some of you guys, all right, like that exact thing that you hated that you're complaining about the Catholic Church, you're actually still doing here today because you're not reading Bibles on your own. You're like relying on me to teach you what the Bible has to say. You should be reading it on your own. As many of you, you don't know your Bible well. And if you don't know your Bible, how are you supposed to know what truth is? And if you don't know what truth is, how are you supposed to push back against things that aren't true? How are you supposed to contend? How are you supposed to compete? How do you know what's true and what's not? You got to know your Bible. Jude assumes that you do. And so he gives us these three examples. He says, for those people who have come in, he kind of ups it a level. He's saying these people aren't just rejecting truth and, and buying into lies. These people are actually teaching it, right? It's, a, it's another level of, of evil is what he's saying. He's saying these people have gone the way of Cain. Now, Cain, um, we see all the way back in the book of Genesis, all the way back at the beginning, uh, Cain was Adam and Eve's son. So you got Adam and Eve, then they have two sons. One of them is Cain, the other one's Abel at first. And so uh, Cain and Abel, at one point, they both bring sacrifices to God, which we're supposed to be you know, making sacrifices for God. We're supposed to bring our, our first and our best to God. And that's exactly what Abel does. Abel brings his first and his best. He's like a, he's all in, you know, he's like an animal guy, so he brings sheep. God is pleased with it. He's like, okay, that's good. But then, a, but then Cain, he's like a farmer, and he brings some of his, like, leftovers, like vegetables and stuff. Like, eh, I don't even like, you know, squash anyway, so here, have some of that. You know, and he presents this before God as his sacrifice to God. And God's like, you're not sacrificing nothing. And God rejects Cain's sacrifice, and he accepts Abel's sacrifice. Well, Cain becomes so bitter that in a fit of rage, he meets Abel, like, out in his field, and he actually kills Abel. 
And then right after that, God comes before Cain, and Cain, he's just like, Cain, where's your brother Abel? As if, you know, God knows. And Cain's just like, I don't know. I don't know where Abel is. How am I supposed to be in charge of my brother? And, and God's like, I know what you did. And, you know, he lies to God. And so think about it. This is the second generation of people. It did not take long for humans to fall fast and hard. You get what I'm saying? Here's Cain. He becomes bitter. All right, he murders his brother, and then he lies straight to God. And why did he do all this? Because he abandoned truth. And what happened? It led to his judgment, and he fell. He gives us this other example, Balaam. All right, Balaam, we also see at the time of Moses, um, when he's leading the people out of Egypt, uh, Balaam was a guy who lived in the area, and he was like an Old Testament, he was like a prophet. And so um, once Moses leads, it's about two million Jewish people out of Egypt, the surrounding nations are a little freaked out because Egypt was the most powerful nation um, in the area. And they're like, how did, two, how did all these slaves like defeat, Israel, defeat Egypt and like get out, which was actually God and his plagues and stuff like that happening. And so people are like just confused, like how did they do this? This is crazy. They got this like super powerful God on their side. You know, I'm worried about it. And so one of the surrounding nations, is, it was this nation of Midian. The king of Midian is freaked out that there's this Jewish people kind of on the doorstep of his kingdom. And so he goes and he finds Balaam, who is this, who's this prophet, and, um, and he says, hey, Balaam, I, 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 what I need you to do is I want you to go and I want you to curse these Jewish people. They're like everywhere. It's crazy. And Balaam's like, nah, actually, I can't do that. God told me you were coming, and God's saying that, yeah, you can't, uh, I, I can't curse them. And so, ba- so the, the king of Midian, he actually sends like an entourage. He sends a bunch of powerful, important people. He sends a bunch of money, huh? And he sends that to Balaam and says, hey, please, please, please come, and would you please curse these people? When Balaam sees this, he's like, yeah, what the heck? Like, what's one little curse? It's not going to be that big of a deal. So he's like, yeah, I'll take your money. All right, so he goes, and he goes with the king of Midian, and they go to like this, I don't know, it's like an outcropping or something, because they're kind of standing above the camp of the Israelites, of the Jewish people. And so Balaam, he just starts, he tries to curse, but it doesn't, nothing comes out as a curse. Actually, he starts blessing the people of Israel because God takes control of his mouth because God's in control. And so when the king of, of Midian hears this, he's just like, what are you doing? I told you to curse them. Now you're, now you're blessing them. He's like, man, I don't know. Like God just did that. I'm sorry, man. I don't, you know, God like took control of my mouth and he made me bless them. I, I'm, I'm sorry. And so he's like, all right, let's try this again. They try three different times. Each time, he keeps blessing them instead of cursing them. And after the third time, the king of Midian is so ticked off and so mad that he's like, I'm not paying you nothing. I'm taking it all away. All right, you were supposed to curse them. Instead, you bless them. And then Balaam, when he, when he hears this, he's like, actually, I got an idea. I actually got a workaround for you, king of Midian. Um, what you need to do is I can't, I, can't, I can't curse these people, all right? God won't let me. But if you send in a bunch of women into the camp with their little fake gods, I bet you can seduce the people of Israel. And, uh, and th- when they start worshiping those gods, actually, God will curse them for you. I can't do it, but you can make God do it. And that's exactly what the king of Midian does. He sends a bunch of women, all right, some of you high schoolers, all right, he sends like the hottest girls, all right, into the camp, okay? And they go in and they start sleeping with 
all the men, and they have their little gods, and a bunch, of the, a bunch of the Jewish people start worshiping these little gods, even after everything that God has done for them. And God is so furious. He, he is angry with his people that he actually, 24,000 people die. There's this big sickness that goes around and kills 24,000 people all because of this. And what Jude is pointing out here is not that, you know, Balaam didn't do anything, in a sense. Like, he's not the one ha- having sex with these ladies. He's not the one worshiping these fake gods. No, he he worships the real God. But what he did was he led these people from truth. He led these people away from truth. And God hates it. He hates it. And it led to Balaam's judgment, even though he was a prophet, and it led to him falling. He also mentions Korah. Real quick, uh, Korah. Um, he, this is about the same time. Uh, they're out in, he's, he, Korah is an Israelite with, with Israel, and, um, and Moses is leading him around. Well, Korah, for some reason, just had like beef with Moses. He didn't like Moses. He didn't think like Moses was the guy cut out for the job. He didn't like that God set Moses up as his authority. And so Korah comes, and he gathers around 250 of his best um, friend, the like Jewish leaders, and they all come, and they start grumbling and complaining against Moses, and what they start saying is, Moses, you think you're so, you think you're like hot stuff and everything, that you could talk to God, and that you're friends with God, but guess what? We could talk to God, too. Like, we could pray to God, and Korah was like this thing called a Levite, which meant he already had like an elevated status, in a sense, with God, with, when it came to serving God, and so, and so he's like, man, I'm a, you know, I'm a Levite. I could, I could talk to God, too. We don't need you, Moses, and Moses goes, and the first thing that he does when he hears this is he falls on his face before God, which is an example for all of us of what we should do when we have hard times coming to our life. And God says, Moses, this is what I'm going to do. I want you guys all to meet me tomorrow morning and present yourselves before me. And so Moses is like, okay. So Moses and his brother Aaron, who's like the, the high priest, they go out and they stand before God. And then Korah and all of his 250 Jewish leader buddies, they stand before God. And then Korah is feeling pretty good about himself. And then God like yells down to Moses and says, hey, Moses, can you take a few steps away from them, please? Which is not a good thing. All right, if you're Korah and you got something, and you're like, oh, maybe I'm on the wrong side here, you know? And all of a sudden, the Bible tells us that the ground opens. Korah and, his, and, his, and some of his followers, they fall into it, and then the ground closes over them. Not the way I'd want to go, you know? And, uh, and then all of a sudden, the 250 leaders, they're like, oh, man, we're next. And they start running, and God starts, like, burning them up. Like, he's, like, throwing fire at them. And I don't know how it looked, but fire falls from heaven, and it starts, starts burning these people up, and they all die. I mean, it's just a terrible, terrible thing. What happens? Korah abandoned the truth, and he led others to abandon truth, and he was judged for it, and he fell. See, these false teachers, they're leading people away from truth, and he says they are, kind of colorful language here, he's like, these people are dangerous, you have to watch out for them. They're like dangerous reefs, all right? They're like, like that can sink your ship is what he's saying. At your, at your dinners, he says, as they eat with you without reverence, they don't care about you. They might act like they do. It might seem like everything's so good, but he's like, they're not. He says, they're like shepherds who only look after themselves. They're not doing what they're supposed to do. They're not looking after everybody. They're only, they're only all about themselves. He says, they're like waterless clouds carry along by winds. They're worth nothing. They're like trees in late autumn that are fruitless. They're twice dead after the summer. And because of that, they cannot stand. They're uprooted. They fall over. 
He says, there are wild waves of the sea foaming up their shameful deeds. They're wandering stars from whom the blackness of darkness is reserved forever, meaning someday they will be judged righteously, fairly, something we don't want. See, he's warning us. He's saying false teaching is so dangerous. It will mess you up. So be alert. He's saying contend, man. He's saying compete and push back against it. You know what the hardest thing about pushing a vehicle? Hopefully a lot of you guys have experienced pushing a car, right? The hardest part about pushing a car is, or anything really, it's the initial push, you know? Like just getting it rolling. After you can kind of get it rolling, it gets easier. It's the same thing with this. He's saying we need to push back. We need to get used to the idea of analyzing everything that we hear and everything that we think deem is truth and analyzing it against the Bible because we have an enemy that will still steal, kill, and destroy us. That's what the enemy's trying to do, and he's stealthy, and he's smart, and he's, he's sly. And so many times I feel like I talk to people who are like, man, I, you know, I've read this, and I saw this on the internet, and, and I believe this, and I experienced this, and I'm comparing what they're telling me against what I know from the Bible, and I'm like, but that's not true. It's not truth. It's tricky. You should question truth. You should fact check what we hear. That's what we need to do. We need to question it, right? You should question what I say on Sunday mornings. You have my permission. You should, right? You need to question what you hear in Bible studies. You need to question what you hear in your groups and what you see on the internet, what you read in some book. You need to question your own beliefs. How? By comparing what you believe against God's truth, by comparing what you believe against God's words, right? It's the only thing that we can trust. That's why we use the Bible here every week. That's why we walk through it together, because everything else is just opinions. And when we hear something that doesn't stand up to God's word, we push back. That's what we got to watch out for. We'll talk about the rest of what he has to say next week. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this. Some of us, we're just not good at pushing back. Some of us, it's like we just haven't competed for so long that we're just like, I don't know, we're just not used to it. We don't feel like it. Some of us, I feel like we, it's like we've lost, we've lost the idea of how to do it. But God, we need to compare everything that we hear with your truth, and then we need to compete for it. We need to contend for truth. Truth is everything. Truth is not something that we make it. Truth is what you say it is. And God, we thank you for that. We thank you that it does not waver, it does not change. And we can look at something like your word and we can just know, man, okay, this is true. This is, this is, I, I, need to re, I need to change my thinking to fit the Bible, not the other way around. God, we thank you for that. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, next week we're going to wrap up Jude. And um, so have a good week. All right, see you guys.